Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey, how's it going, guys? This is Zuby, of course, host of the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. And I wanted to drop a quick message here with a very quick and simple but important request. And this is that if you are someone who has been listening to this podcast for a long time, I would strongly encourage you to please support the podcast on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Zuby Music. I'm looking to expand the podcast this year. I'm also going to be working on a lot of new music this year, releasing new singles and a brand new album. And if you're someone who enjoys and appreciates my work as an independent artist, I would massively appreciate if you could support me financially on Patreon. Now, by doing so, you're going to also get access to the Team Zuby community as well as other perks. We have a private chat group on Discord, so if you want to stay away from Twitter and all the wildness and craziness of social media and just be talking to like-minded people, including myself, then you can join that. You can become a supporter from as little as $2 a month, and you can join the Discord for just $5 plus a month. Please check it out. That's patreon.com forward slash Zuby Music, Z-U-B-Y Music. Would love to have you on board, and it'll really help me to grow. Thank you. I am the man, sick with the slang, sick and I'm destined for fame. Do for the fam, not for the grand, stunt me a destined for pain. I do not front, I do not scam, put some respect on my name. What's up, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world? I would like to welcome you back to the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. Now, on today's episode, we've actually got on a returning guest. This is Dr. Gad Saad, who is a professor at Concordia University in Canada. He is an evolutionary behavioral scientist, a very well-known public intellectual, and he is also the author of a book which I read earlier on this year called The Parasitic Mind. Welcome to the show. Oh, so good to be with you again, Mr. Zuby. Mr. Awesome. Okay, Mr. Can we go with Mr.? We'll, we'll go with Mr. for, for the next uh, hour or so. If I switch off, I'll let you know. Okay, cheers. Okay. <laughs> awesome. So I've done a brief intro there, um, but for people who may not be familiar with who you are or your book or your previous podcasts and work, tell them a little bit about who you are. So, I mean, scientifically speaking, I'm uh, an evolutionary behavioral scientist, which basically means I apply the lens of evolution to study human behavior. Uh, And specifically, I try to apply it in the context of consumer behavior, hence the reason why I'm housed in a business school. Mm -hmm. But of course, I define consumer behavior in my case very broadly. So it's not just that we consume Coca-Cola and Starbucks but we also consume religious narratives, we consume popular culture, we consume friendships. So much of what we do purposefully uh, is consumatory in nature. And so I study the Darwinian and biological underpinnings of our consuming instinct. So that's been, uh, you know, in a brief summary, what my academic career has looked at, mm-hmm. has looked like. And also I've been someone who has been a not stay in your lane professor in that uh I'm not someone who only, you know, works in the lab, only works in evolutionary psychology and consumer psychology. I feel that uh, I may have some valuable things to add to a whole bunch of issues. And so very early in my career, I decided to 
veer away from just being a regular academic and hence the, the public intellectual uh, title. Mm -hmm. uh, and much of my interventions within that sphere revolve around trying to combat bad ideas, all of which, at least the ones that I discuss in The Parasitic Mind, have been spawned on university campuses. And so I often remind people that it takes lofty intellectuals and professors to come up with some of the dumbest ideas. And so, <laughs> and so basically what I do in The Parasitic Mind is I trace uh, all of these idea pathogens, which if you'd like, I'd be happy to talk about more of them mm -hmm. you know, later on. So I discuss how these idea pathogens were spawned, how they then proliferated through many walks of life, not just in academia, but in politics and HR departments and Hollywood and journalism. And then if I've done a good job, hopefully in the last two chapters of the book, I offer a vaccine, an inoculation for people to fight against this dreadful global pandemic of the human mind. Wow, there's a, there's a lot there. So when you use the term bad ideas, what do you personally define as a bad idea? Because it's something right. that I think could be very subjective to a lot of people. Sure. Uh, so maybe I, before I answer that, let me explain why I use the term parasitic okay. in, in my book. Uh, so as I was looking at all of these bad ideas, which I, I will I will answer your question in a second, uh, I wanted to try to come up with a framework to explain why is it that people can succumb to such alluring yet dreadfully bad ideas. And, and maybe now I'll answer your question. They're bad ideas in that they're a rejection of reality. They're a rejection of our folk psychology. They're a rejection of a commitment to evidence-based thinking. They're a rejection of critical thinking. They're a rejection of the scientific method. So they're bad in every epistemological way that you could think of. And so I wanted to come up with a framework that can help me understand under one elegant rubric, you know, how these ideas come to be. And so I, I started looking through the literature. One of the things that evolutionary psychologists do is they look at what's called comparative psychology. Comparative psychology is when if you're trying to understand something about human cognition, you will look to our animal cousins to look at how they think and act and behave and feel and so on. And so it's comparative psychology in that you are comparing human cognition to other animal cognition. Mm -hmm. And so in looking at the animal literature, I stumbled on the area of parasitology, which is the study of parasites. But parasites, of course, can uh, when, when a parasite enters a host, it could reside in different places, different parts of the body. Mm -hmm. So a tapeworm can be in your intestinal tract. Whereas neuroparasites, so the field of neuroparasitology is the field that explores, you know, parasitic infestations where the parasite seeks to reside in the host's brain. And specifically, it then alters the neuronal circuitry of the hapless animal so that it could benefit the reproductive interests of the parasite. So to give you an example that maybe some of your viewers have, have heard of, but they are endless examples of, of this phenomenon in the animal kingdom. Toxoplasma gondii is a parasite that actually can infect humans. Many, many humans are infected with the parasite. But the classic manifestation of Toxoplasma gondii is when a mouse that should be very afraid of cats, when it is infected with this parasite, uh, it becomes sexually attracted to the cat's urine, which is not a very good attraction for a mouse to hold. Mm. And so... the. So that's how I decided, aha, I think I found my, my, my framework because in the same way that these neuroparasites end up being adaptive 
for the parasite, but maladaptive for the host, many of these dreadful ideas, hence I call them idea pathogens, have a similar signature. They, they first appear alluring, they, they first seem sexy, they first seem as though they are solving some noble social justice goal, but they are slowly leading us to the abyss of infinite lunacy. So I've read, I've read the book, but what would be some of these idea pathogens? What would be a couple that you think are, that the one, a couple that concern you and that sure. you, you're worried about and that you actively are combating because you are really someone who's out there on the front lines using your voice, using your platforms to combat a lot of this stuff? So there are many that I discuss in the book. Maybe I'll, I'll discuss a few. And if mm -hmm. you then want to discuss some more, we can do that. Sure. So take, for example, so I'll just mention a few first, and then I'll discuss each. So postmodernism, cultural relativism, social constructivism, identity politics, uh, the, the ethos of the die religion. Die is the acronym that I came up with, diversity, inclusion, and equity. Mm -hmm. All of these are different idea pathogens, but that are dreadfully bad for various reasons. So let's begin with what I consider to be the granddaddy of all idea pathogens, postmodernism. Okay. Postmodernism is a, a philosophical framework that argues that there is no objective truth and that we are fully shackled by subjectivity, fully shackled by uh, personal biases. So to speak of a universal truth is silly because everything is subjective and relative. Now, in, in, in some very banal, trivial way, that's true. But in, in the grand epistemological sense of is there a truth, well, there, there'd be no point for scientists to wake up and get out of bed if we didn't think that there was some semblance of a truth to be discovered, some statistical regularity, some natural laws to be uncovered, right? Mm -hmm. so, so, for example, as an evolutionary psychologist, I know that there are there is an innate human nature that makes Zuby and I a, a lot more similar to each other than we're different from each other. And the reason why we are similar is because we are actually operating under a software that runs our minds that is the exact same software as, you know, the ancient Greek po poet was also running under. And mm -hmm. so, so imagine how nihilistic it is to teach, you know, 40, 50 years worth of students that there is no objectivity, right? I mean, everything is utterly shackled by subjectivity. That This is why I call postmodernism, intellectual terrorism, because as I always remind people, uh, and I think it's a very, you know, using imagery and metaphors and analogies is often a great way to persuade people. So the 9-11 the hijackers flew planes onto buildings. Well, postmodernists, uh, intellectual terrorists, postmodernists fly uh, planes of BS onto our edifices of reason. So they use different tools to blow up edifices. Instead of mm -hmm. it being planes, they actually use nihilistic nonsense. So that would be an example of a dreadfully bad idea pathogen that now, now you might say, well, okay, so who cares if people are, are, uh, you know, are uh, intoxicated by this kind of stupidity? Mm -hmm. Well, there's an endless number of ways. So for example, uh, you now hear about my truth rather than the truth, right? Mm -hmm. My lived experience. Well, that instinct to speak about the myopic truth that defines my lived experience really comes from the signature of postmodernism, right? There is no truth. There's only my lived truth. Mm -hmm. There is no biology. There is no genitalia. There is no gender, right? There is no race. There's transracialism. Mm -hmm. All of these eventual departures from reason stem from a commitment to postmodernism. 
Yeah. I think what's really interesting with a lot of these ideas is I think the biggest proponents of them actually have no idea where they stem from. So I think the average person who's saying something like my truth or talking about my lived experience and using a lot of this terminology and phraseology, I don't think that they have any idea what the academic roots are of these things going back several decades. So I think that's a really interesting concept because as you call them idea pathogens and things that spread from one person to another, it's like once you get down at several levels, people are no longer even aware of the original source. So they're continuing to spread those ideas and even be activists and advocate for certain things. And they don't even know where it came from, let alone are able to see what the long-term potential consequences of it are. And I, I find that in the world we live in today, it seems like a lot of people don't think about second, third, fourth order consequences. So people are just looking, okay, here and now, okay, well, what's the problem with letting biological males compete with women in sports? You know, we don't want to discriminate against anybody. It makes people feel good. It makes me feel like I'm um, a virtuous soldier who's being inclusive and I don't want to be identified as transphobic or be stuck with any other label, etc. And But pe- they're not thinking, okay, wait, if we actually do this, what are the long-term impacts, not just on women's sports and safety and spaces, but even just the fabric of reality. And I think I think that's something that you are are deeply concerned about, right? Just this fabric of reality, because if you can get people to accept that, then, you know, if if, if you can get someone to just accept that, okay, there's men and women are identical, but they're also different. And you can also switch between them. And you can also be non-binary and gender is also a social construct. But yet you can transition from one side. You're you're supposed to hold all these ideas simultaneously in your head to be politically correct, which are logically they're they're not coherent, right? All of these things cannot be simultaneously true, but you're just supposed to accept it and shut up, let lest someone call you a name or some kind of bigot or phobe or ism, which naturally people don't don't like. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, uh, so just to continue on your point about the the cognitive inconsistencies, uh, in my in one of my earlier books, The Consuming Instinct, I early I think in maybe chapter one, I remark on the fact that many of these uh, at the time I didn't call them idea pathogens, but I was already enmeshed in all that nonsense mm. because I'm an academic. Uh, so many of these uh, you know social justice warriors argue that heterosexuality is an imposed norm whereas homosexuality is innate. Now, you don't need to be a fancy <laughs> evolutionary biologist or an evolutionary, a fancy evolutionary psychologist to see the problem in that position for a, you ready, drum roll, a sexually reproducing species. So for a sexually reproducing species, heterosexuality is a form of imposed heteronormativity, yeah. but homosexuality, which is the Darwinian cul-de-sac, mm-hmm. is perfectly innate. So, I mean, when you're able to spew something like that, not as satire, but as part of a fundamental tenet that you're teaching in universities, you know we're going down the wrong path. But to to, to go back to your earlier question, so when I was looking at all of these idea pathogens, and and I've only mentioned now so far postmodernism, but if you want, I'll discuss a few others. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I wanted to do is, so I'm, I'm someone who's very 
consilient in my thinking. And consilience is a is a term that has existed for for a long time. But the the, the gentleman who kind of reinvigorated into our collective lexicon is a evolutionary biologist by the name of E.O. Wilson, who wrote. I, I can't I can't recommend his book enough to people. The book is called Consilience: Unity of Knowledge. Uh, consilience refers to exactly that unity of knowledge. So physics is more consilient than sociology, not because physicists are inherently smarter than sociologists, but it's because they create unified, organized trees of knowledge, which sociologists don't. So one of the problems with the social sciences is that they typically lack consilience, which is something that I've written about extensively in my own scientific work. And so as someone who thinks in a very synthetic, consilient way, one of the things that I wanted to do as I was uh, writing The Parasitic Mind is to look at what what are some things that are common across all of these idea pathogens? So in the same way that if you are a oncologist who studies some cancer, you recognize that pancreatic cancer is different than uh, leukemia, which is different from a melanoma, but yet these cancers do share at the very least one thing in common, which is the unchecked division of cells. So we know that there is some fundamental similarity across different cancers. And so I wanted to propose something similar for these idea pathogens, and that's going to speak to, to your original question. Mm -hmm. All of these idea pathogens have the following uh, in common. They wish to free us from the shackles of reality by looking at some noble cause. And in the pursuit of that noble cause, if you have to murder truth in the service of that noble cause, so be it, right? So, mm -hmm. for example... Uh, the transgender activists, in the pursuit of the desire, which I think you and I would agree, transgender people should not face any systematic discrimination mm -hmm. or systemic discrimination. That doesn't mean that in the pursuit of that goal, we then murder the truth via some of the insane positions. You know, it's not only women who menstruate, it's people who menstruate, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, there is no hormonal, physiological, biological, behavioral, anatomical, morphological differences between men and women. Science mm -hmm. has not established that. Mm -hmm. So when you're able to depart from reality so uh, shockingly yes. in the service of protecting transgender people who deserve protection, mm -hmm. uh, that I always tell people I could chew gum and walk at the same time. I could sign up for all sorts of noble justice causes mm -hmm. uh, without ever ceding a millimeter of truth. So I think that's the problem with all these idea pathogens, right? They they start off with a kind of feel good platitude. You know, I don't want I don't want uh, closed borders. That feels racist. I mm -hmm. want everybody. But but you're not a three year old child, right? I mean, a a, a nation exists as a nation because it has inviolable borders. Mm -hmm. If anybody could get in, so. There is kind of this childlike empathy that comes with a lot of these progressive platitudes, right? I mean, but don't you want to love transgender people? But don't you think that uh, Mexican and Guatemalans deserve to come to the U.S.? Yeah. Well, uh, no. That's why we have a country, right? I mean, mm -hmm. I, I feel very bad for the homeless person who's outside, but I don't leave my front door open. So, uh, so it really comes from, as you said... A, an inability to look, as you correctly said, second order, third order, fourth order effects. And why are they incapable of doing that? Because they've uh, given up on their abilities to engage in critical thinking. And so what I do in the parasitic mind is I say, if you want to navigate through many of these important debates, here are some epistemological tools that you can use in defending a position. Mm. 
Why do you think that so many of these ideas, some of them you've mentioned, I mean, concepts like postmodernism and identity politics um, and some of the other things you've mentioned, I mean, they've they've existed for decades, in some cases, centuries or perhaps even millennia. But why do you think that it seems like in the past 10 years, especially, it's really come to a head? These These ideas have come outside of the weird world of academia, and they've gone into entertainment, music, Hollywood, um, establishments, the the police forces, politics. They, they've gone into everything. There are so many organizations that I used to have a modicum of respect for, which in the last three years, I don't know who's, I don't know if it's one person running all of their social media accounts, but all of them, one by one, like dominoes, have put out certain statements or ideas, whether this is the the UN or the ACLU or some scientific papers and journals. It's like everything has been infected by these pathogens and they're all using the same language and terminology. And in some cases, they're just outright telling telling people lies. Exactly. They're, 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 they're straight up lying. And so why in the past few years do you think it's become such a thing? Yeah, that, great question. So I think here I'll refer to, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cite him, but it's not as though this concept didn't exist before him. So mm-hmm. Malcolm Gladwell's famous book, The Tipping Point, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you, you, you're walking around thinking you're perfectly healthy until the tipping point of you dropping dead of a heart attack, right? Yeah. Four minutes earlier, you were not under the impression that you were going to drop dead, but, but literally something within your arteries where the blockage wasn't quite there yet. and But now at time T equal Z, one, mm-hmm. now it's too late, right? You start off with one cancer cell. I mean, literally one cancer cell, then 500 cancer cells, then 10 million cancer cells, and then you have terminal mm-hmm. cancer. Yeah. So the reason why we are seeing exactly what you are uh, pointing to now is that it, it took 40, 50 years of metastatic spread of the parasites right you needed to have all of the i can't you said to not to swear so all the <laughs> all the bsers at the university campuses also known as professors yeah. to completely brainwash 10 20 20 you know five generations of students by generations i mean not in their chronological age but in terms of their degrees right mm-hmm. so if you started in 1960 with the postmodernism stuff and, and and social constructivism and so on uh 40 50 years later as you correctly pointed out these things then get out of the wacky world of academia and then infiltrate everything but it takes a while for the metastasis to happen right so mm-hmm. you know our prime minister justin trudeau is a walking manifestation of every single idea pathogen that I discuss in the parasitic mind. Well, how was he infested this way? Well, Mm -hmm. because he is the product of exactly every confluence of brainwashing that you would expect from a progressive university setting, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, he he wants a feminist foreign policy. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> right? I mean, I mean, it, it's it's almost satirical, right? Yeah. I always joke around that, you know, I'm the guy with the prophetic satire. I satirize something and then mm-hmm. I stand with my hands crossed waiting for reality <laughs> to catch up to me. Well, why am I able to do that? Because I, a good satirist is someone who could really extrapolate using the slippery slope, right? So if I see the lunacy at time T equals zero, mm-hmm. then I say, 
what is the logical, well, logical is not really the right term, but what is the <laughs> conclusion of this insanity? So let me give you an example. B because I have a mathematics background uh, and hence I'm well-versed in all of you know number theory and the rest of it, uh, about four, I think about three, four years ago, I uh, satirically on my channel uh, introduced a new field of mathematics that I had coined and founded, which I called social justice mathematics. And so I went through all of the uh, properties of, of numbers. For example, irrational number. And I said, this is it's disgusting to use the word irrational because that marginalizes people who have mental health issues, right? And so I went through all of these different mathematical properties, completely satirizing the stuff. By the way, I would receive emails from very fancy mathematicians who say they sit around in their math club watching my clip and cracking up laughing, right? <laughs> well, guess what? We now have yes. exactly that, right? Mathematics is racist. Mm -hmm. Getting the right answer is a form of white supremacy. So when you don't have a commitment to the most fundamental sense of sense-making, you end up down the slippery slope of lunacy. Yeah, it's um, it's bizarre. I mean, yeah, I think, I think it's a lot of that. I mean, do you think that some of it is also just what word would I use? Comfort com combined with boredom, right? Because a lot of these ideas are unique. They're pretty unique to the modern Western world. If you travel to the Middle East or parts of Africa or Asia or South America, some of these ideas and conversations they're they're not really a thing. I often joke that um the more comfortable and developed and economically successful a, a country is, then the more genders there are, right? So, <laughs> so that's the second theory you have, because you also got the, what is that called? The the Zubi Okan's razor? Or what oh, Zubi's razor, the pronouns Zubi's is by razor, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah, so, so, you know, if you go to, you know, if you go to every country in Africa only has two genders, but yeah. then, you know, the, depending on where you go, it, it changes somehow. So... I mean, that, that's something I wonder a lot. I think a lot of the problems that we're having in the modern Western world, whether you're talking about political polarization or you're talking even some aspects of mental health problems, even physical health problems, lots of these ideas that are spreading, et cetera. I, I feel like people are, are too comfortable almost. Yeah. I think for, for decades, we haven't been fighting wars or dealing with any major pestilence. Um, I mean, I think even the response to what we're dealing with now um, with this particular virus, I mean, I think our ancestors would be would be laughing at us at how far we've gone for something with an over 99.9% survival rate in majority of demographics. And I, I feel like that level of comfort, and I, I don't really know the word, um, sedentary lifestyle, and just just stuff being very, very easy, not having real problems, real challenges. And also on top of that, and I think this is a big one is I think that for the first time in history, and in the first place in history, there isn't an obvious, genuine social justice fight that needs to be fought. Yeah. So if you go back, yeah, if you go back, I mean, even in the last century, you could look on the books, in the, in the law books of a country like the UK or the USA, and you could, okay, this group is being discriminated against. This law is discriminatory. Women are being mistreated. Black people are being mistreated. Um, this group is being mistreated. Okay, gay people are being mistreated. There, there was always something on the books or in the law or very strongly in society where you could clearly make a case that, okay, um, things are not equal, things are not fair. Whereas now, again, I think, in the and I, I noticed in the past decade is when this we, we sort of turned and, and hit this point, is that's me also thinking, I think there are a lot of people who, 
have a very sort of activist mindset, shall we say, and they want to fight something. They want to be a social justice warrior. They want to feel like they're battling for civil rights or whatever. And But th- there isn't an obvious thing. So I think even that's why people are obsessed with this whole transgenderism thing, right? It's like, wait, why, why all of a sudden is, if you think of how rare transgender people are, right. why is that such a hot topic? And why is, why is that the thing? And I think it's because, yeah, number one, people are bored and too comfortable. And then also all the other fights, all the real fights have already been won. So now we need yeah. to kind of make up new struggles. Yeah. Uh, so there, there's a lot there to unpack. So yeah, sure. I'll, 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 I'll tackle several different parts. And and actually, you, you know, pretty much anything to what you just said, there is a section in the parasitic mind that covers it. Yeah. So take, for example, your uh, what you said about, uh, you know, the comfort in the West versus, say, if you were in the Middle East, where I come from, where I escape from. Uh, so there's a section in, in my book where I talk about the homeostasis of victimology. Uh, and so here I use uh, a, 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 a typical uh, mechanism found in, in physical systems. So, for example, your thermostat is a homeostatic system because you set the thermostat at uh, 23 degrees Celsius and then it reads the temperature. And as a function of whether it's cooler or hotter than 23, it will take the corrective action to set the temperature at whatever you wanted it at, right? Mm-hmm. But many things in our bodies are homeostatic systems, right? If my blood sugar goes down too low, I get a signal to my brain, go eat, and then I set the thermostat uh, or, or the homeostasis of my sugar levels. Yeah. Uh, even, even there are some psychological mechanisms that are homeostatic. And so I took this mechanism and I argued that the West suffers from a form of homeostasis of victimology, which basically means what? I need to set the thermostat of victimology at a certain point. We are a racist, evil, diabolical society, Mm -hmm. and I need to have that reality met. When I look around and I see that we're actually not racist, transphobic, genocidal monsters that the thermostat is telling me I need to achieve, I now alter the definitions of what constitutes rape and genocide and hatred Mm. and racism so i can meet that thing right so if there isn't rampant uh you know gang rape centers on university campuses as many people make us seem to believe like it's so scary for women to walk around on western campuses because they're going to be gang raped any any minute because there's so right then you find out that what constitutes sexual assault is if someone cat called you while you were walking on campus. That was a form of linguistic rape, right? So I have altered the definition of what constitutes a sexual assault. I had to take a seminar at my university last year because as a then, I'm 56 now, as a 55-year-old man, I hadn't yet developed the wisdom to know how to interact with the opposite sex. I needed my university to to carry me through a step-by-step process of how to interact with, you know, half of humanity known as women. Yeah. And so they would give you little uh, vignettes where uh, you have to answer what is the correct answer. So uh, you see a woman walking on campus and a guy approaches her to pick her up and says something uh, objectionable to her. Was she the uh, the victim of a sexual assault? Now, I know what the answer should be. It should be yes. And so I answer no. no. And so it says, ooh, you must go back and practice your seminar of understanding, right? So 
In Ethiopia, they don't worry about linguistic rape. No. Now, by the way, that doesn't mean that I'm condoning reprehensible behavior. I'm not suggesting, oh, yeah, women should walk on campus and be treated poorly. Of course, you mm-hmm. should be galant and chivalrous and polite and not obnoxious. But it's not linguistic sexual assault, right? No. But by changing the definition of what constitutes victimology, you misgender me. It's a form of erasing my identity. Mm-hmm. You want to know what erase my identity? Live three seconds of my childhood in Lebanon. Mm-hmm where you don't know whether the next minute your head is going to be uh, disassociated from the rest of your body. Suddenly, your misgendering doesn't carry the same victimology, which, by the way, as you know from following me on social media, my victimology score allows me to to be the Teflon god. (laughs) Anybody who comes after me, I'm very likely to outrank her outrank you and therefore you run away so it's not even the strength of my arguments that intimidates you it's not the strength of my critical thinking it's that whatever you pull out jussie smollett with your bull excuse me uh (laughs) i can i can outrank you how how devastatingly bad is it that we now live in such a zeitgeist and so it's exactly what you said which is the west has been so pampered they've so taken for granted these freedoms and liberties that they have, they think it's the default value of humanity, which mm-hmm. in reality, it's an incredibly anomalous bleep of humanity. Humanity is not is not based on the West's reality. And so it takes people like me or Ayan Hersey Ali or others who understand the full buffet of possible societies that we could live in to yeah. say, hey, guys, stop acting like morons. And we know what's really interesting with what you just said as well is that in this attempt to overcorrect some of these real but largely imaginary problems in the modern Western world is in attempting to progress, people actually end up regressing. So as you were just saying, with this whole identity politics game, people care more about the identity of the messenger than the message itself. Right. So I always say, you know, a fact is a fact, regardless of who says it. Right. So whether it's someone I generally agree with or disagree with their skin color, their race, their sexuality, if someone says a fact, the, it's it's a fact. Right. Or even if someone states an opinion, they're sure there are some exceptions to this, you know, but generally the the notion that you view everything based on these immutable characteristics and then you decide what you should think about it or whether it's right or wrong that is actually kind of a, a it's a regression back to how things used to be or even how things are in some societies that don't have true equality where your race or your ethnicity or your gender or your social status does actually have an impact right the law for you is different if you're a man versus if you're a woman the law for you is different if you're from this tribe rather than that tribe, etc. So I find it really fascinating how um, I kind of compare it to, to Pac-Man. You know, if you if you go all the way to the right of the screen, you come back out on the left and, <laughs> and vice versa. So it's kind of like when, when you go too far on, you know, extreme conservatism and extreme progressivism look remarkably similar. Yeah, indeed. Uh, by the way, when you said about, uh, you know, uh, the law is different if you're a man or a woman. I have a section in the parasitic mind where I argue that Sharia law, which is Islamic law, is identical in spirit to the progressive stack. 
to identity politics. Mm-hmm. And let me let me break that down because it's actually a, a, an incredibly powerful point to any to any of the blue-haired progressives that are listening to the show. Maybe you need to re-dye your hair to a natural color after you listen to this, because uh, Sharia law institutes as a as a mechanism of of Islamic law that the punishment of a crime is exactly determined by the identity of the perpetrator and the victim. A Muslim man kills a Jewish woman is a very, very different reality than a a Jewish woman killing a Muslim guy, right? Mm. Now, our reflex in the West is to say, my God, that's grotesque. Isn't isn't Lady Justice supposed to be blind? Isn't that why she wears the, the eye cover so that your immutable characteristics should not uh, in any way be relevant in metting out justice. Well, what does the progressive identity politics do? It's exactly that, right? This person can say that word, but not this person. If this person says it, they will be punished and their career is finished. If the other person says it, he just means, hey, buddy, how you doing, right? Uh, if this person says that to this person, it's different than if the other person said, right? So progressive identity politics in its spirit is indistinguishable from Sharia law, right? And And... I've yet to hear someone challenge me on that dimension because they can't logically, I mean, or or syntactically speaking, it is indistinguishable, right? Mm -hmm. A a truly enlightened society, as we've typically had in the West, places all of the gold nuggets on individual dignity. I am first God sad before I'm Lebanese, before I'm Jewish, before I present myself to Zubi as God sad. Now, the fact that I also have a history called Lebanese Jew and so on, that's part of my multi-attribute of my personhood. Mm-hmm. But I represent Gad Saad. Judge me based on all of my qualities and all of my faults, right? So, for example, I am very good friends with Imam Tawhidi, the Imam of Peace, right? Mm-hmm. He is an Orthodox Muslim cleric. Well, I have a lot more in common with him than I do with many of my Orthodox Jewish friends with whom I can't have a conversation. Therefore, what linked me to Imam Tawhidi, if I were a tribal identity politics guy, I would be, you're Jewish, you're in my group, you're not Jewish, you're out of my group. You're black, you're in my group, you're white, you're a white supremacist. No, I look at your individual values, your individual beliefs, and I say, I actually think this guy is super cool. I want to be friends with this orthodox Islamic cleric. Yeah, <laughs> I'm a I'm a Lebanese Jewish atheist. Yeah, it, no, it's it's really interesting. I mean, I, I feel like humanity in general just struggles with the concept of moderation and balance. Yeah, right. It, it, and, and it seems like whenever it's it, one one thought I have been having recently, and this goes for quite a few things, even some financial and economic aspects. But I wonder if the situation that we've kind of had in the modern West, perhaps for the past two to three decades is, um, I don't, I don't really like this thought, but is is that almost like a a, a temporary anomaly, right? And almost we're, we're reverting back to the mean right now. So going back into identity politics and going back into some of this type of thinking, et cetera, that's actually the norm. That's the historical norm. That's the global norm. And maybe this is just like, okay, it was nice to it was nice to have that temporary period here, but now we're kind of going back to the norm. Obviously, that's not I'm not gonna kind of sit back and take this like yourself. I'm someone who's right. on the front lines every day, right? Trying to challenge 
certain ideas and certain loser think to use the Scott Adams term. Um, but I mean, what are, what are your thoughts on what are your thoughts on that? Because one thing I'm really intrigued by, and one reason why I love having these conversations and doing this podcast is, I'm just deeply intrigued by what I'd call the human experience. And I'm really curious as to how do human beings, how and why do we do what we do, right? That's your whole field of study. On an individual level, a group level, a national level, when it comes to politics, religion, morality, social dynamics, sexual dynamics, whatever it is, just why why do we do this? And, and why are there so many different ways? And it's it's not... It's not all based in logic and reason very far from it. Very, I think very, very little of human behavior and reality is, is truly based on that as much as we'd like to think otherwise. Um, so, yeah, I don't really know what, what my question is there, but feel yeah, free to no, jump I mean, in. I guess maybe I'll take the part where you said, is it, is it a fulcrum that's swinging back? Or is yeah, it yeah. A, so, look, I, coalitional psychology is an innate part of our mental architecture, meaning that to view the world via the lens of us versus them, blue team versus red team, is a part of uh, you know our mind's architecture. This is why, for example, Abrahamic religions are so uh, alluring, because you and I already come with the penchant to view the world as us versus them. So there are mm-hmm. the Jews and the Goy. There are the believers and the Kuffar, the infidels. Mm-hmm. There are the, the ones who are taking Jesus into their hearts and the rest who are going to go burn in hell. So it's easy for us to characterize everything as blue versus red. Mm -hmm. And I I actually offer a solution to that. You know, you could still be tribal, but belong to the tribe of truth, not Jewish tribe. Now, Now, it might sound like, oh, but that's a cliche. How do you instantiate that? Well, you do instantiate it by having your highest commitment be to truth and freedom. So in chapter one of my book, of the parasitic mind, I talk about what are the two driving ideals that have shaped all of my trajectory in life. And there really are two of them, the pursuit of truth and the pursuit of freedom. And I I give examples of the pursuit of freedom that are not just freedom in the sense of freedom of speech and freedom of conscience. So I give examples from my life where I sought freedom in completely different contexts, so, for example, I used to be a very competitive soccer player. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, I used to play, uh, I mean, the number 10 position, the playmaker position. One of the things that I was very good at, at as a number 10 is that I would exploit spaces. I, I float around looking for spaces. So if for anybody who's a, who's a soccer viewer, so what Kevin De Bruyne does, right? Uh, he is someone who knows how to slowly shift into open spaces. That freedom was central to how well I played. Now, if I had a coach who would impose certain restrictions of movements on me, today you're playing more left midfield and you have to track back and cover Zuby when he comes down on the right wing. It's not because I was a prima donna who didn't want to listen to the coach, but by you imposing certain restrictions on my freedom of movement, it actually took away a lot of my artistry and my creativity. So... Mm -hmm. So so if you want to be tribal, uh, belong to the tribe of truth. How do you seek truth? Be an avid follower of the scientific method. So that's mm-hmm. one. But to answer your more general question is the fulcrum swinging back. Uh, there, is a, there is a quote at the end of chapter four that I use from Ronald Reagan, which I don't remember the exact quote, so I'll just give the general gist. He basically says that 
in every generation, you have to be assiduous in your defense of our freedoms because there's always someone who is trying to basically eradicate the freedoms. So mm -hmm. the natural state is not for us to live in a Shangri-La of Western freedoms because the innate mechanisms are always trying to push us back to a darker past. Uh, but you'd like to think that at some point you can educate enough people, although I'm not necessarily optimistic about this, <laughs> you don't have to refighting the same fight after every generation. So, yeah. so I'd like to think that it's optimistic and it's going to swing back, but I suspect mm -hmm. that it's going to take many generations to redress the ship. Yeah. Something that's really interesting there is, um, you know, speaking more on this concept of freedom. And this is something which I already suspected, but honestly, the past year has totally confirmed it for me, which is that people like the concept and the word freedom more than they genuinely like and value freedom. That That's my overall view. Not not everybody. Are you thinking I, I think, of COVID? Are you thinking this because of how... I'm, I'm, I mean, people are literally cheer. People are literally advocating to lose their most basic rights, right? People are advocating for even it was happening before COVID, right? People are advocating for reductions in freedom of speech. If you live in America, people are trying to give their guns away and, and want the government to take their guns. People want not just themselves, but other people to be put under house arrest, even if they're perfectly healthy. They want, even if you're perfectly healthy, they want everyone to be wearing not just one mask, but two masks and they want this and they want that. And I, I, I suspected for quite a long time, even having traveled to lots of different countries and, you know, growing up in Saudi Arabia myself, I've always thought that people, people love the words liberty and freedom and they really like the idea. But when push comes to shove, especially when fear takes place, when, when there's a little bit of fear, I think that actually comfort and security in reality people value above freedom and liberty i i agree and 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 i don't mean to get into a conversation about religion we, we, sure. I think we covered that last time and when i came on your show yeah it's fine uh, in a sense religion also offers you that comfort and security and mm -hmm. in doing so it it takes away some of your cognitive liberty right because let so let's let me focus on orthodox jews since, since i'm jewish right okay uh I mean, Orthodox Jews have the granddaddy in the sky controlling at what time they light a candle on a given day, right? So even the, that freedom is removed. Whether you wear leather shoes on what day or not is determined by a celestial uh, big daddy. I mean, every single thing is subcontracted to a big daddy who will tell you what to do. So, mm -hmm. so one of the reasons why I think, and you, you might, you might actually think this is good news as, as someone who is a believer. I don't think that we can ever eradicate the instinct of believing. I think the natural, the natural position of, you know, I am an anomaly, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. It's not, so it is the, the atheist who comes from a tradition of 6,000 years of monotheism is the one who's the freak. Yeah. The one who is a religious believer is mm -hmm. actually the, the natural state of things because religion offers us exactly what you said so now covid comes along now the government is the big celestial daddy in yes. the sky you mm -hmm. tell me when to walk out you tell me you tell me which sexual position to have <laughs> the of, oh it's doggy style now got it because there's no face-to-face -face 
I'm on board. Let's do this. Okay. Yeah. So, so again, I'm being satirical, but mm -hmm. that, that's the comfort that comes, right? Yeah. Most people are sheep, right? I mean, I, listen, I exist in the biggest ecosystem of sheep. It's called mm -hmm. academia, right? You would like to think that academics are intellectual seals who have the courage to go into new hostile intellectual landscapes. It couldn't be further from the truth. You yeah. go boo to an academic, he's, he or she sucks their thumb and go into a fetal position. So, mm -hmm. so you're exactly right. I mean, and it, it, it drives me insane. I mean, if we're talking about COVID, to see exactly what you're saying, which is how no one is indignant, right? I mean, right? I mean, how many millions have lost all of their... I mean, look, I sit as an academic with a guaranteed income. Yep. So technically, I could say, I don't give a damn, right? As a matter of fact, most of the people who from from the top of their elitist ivory tower. Yeah, they're comfortable. They're comfortable. Mm -hmm. Whereas I have theory of mind. In other words, I have true empathy. Even though I am perfectly insulated from any of the financial repercussions of COVID, I could put my mind, I could put myself in the mind of the millions of people who don't know if tomorrow they can feed their children. Yeah. And yet all of my bien-pensant elitist ivory tower colleagues say, what kind of science denier are you? And mm. it's only another 433 years of lockdown. <laughs> we will have herd immunity. Yeah. I mean, come on, man. I, I call this, by the way, progressive neurology, right? Mm. Uh, if you want to get rid of the potential of having uh, migraines, of having brain cancer, of having a stroke, engage in preemptive decapitation that removes everything <laughs> so this is a new form of progressive medicine just yeah. off with the head and you could never suffer from migraine so mm -hmm. let's end everybody's lives to protect everyone's lives yeah it's it's really fascinating i mean and do you what what do you think about this because i think there's a i think there's a big religious type component to it. I mean, I say this as someone who myself is religious, but I, one thing that I find really amusing is with a lot of the ideas in your books, I mean, some of those concepts I consider sort of secular religions at this point almost, right? right? And I think that even again in the past year, a lot of the stuff, I mean, science itself, I mean, I think now we have to separate science from the science right. or scientism, right? I'm hearing people saying phrases like, I believe in science. The other day, someone told me, I believe in the mask. And I was like, that's a really religious, I was like, that's a very religious thing to say there. Like, I believe, you know, and trust the experts. And the most fascinating thing to me is you're not meant to question anything. Exactly. Right? I say, well, if you can't question it, then it's not scientific. It's, it's dogma, right? I mean, and again, I say this as someone who, who, is, religious, who is religious, but I see the parallels and I'm kind of like, well, you keep screaming science at me. And then when I say, okay, I've already had COVID, I have the antibodies, I don't have the virus, I'm not infectious, so why do I need to wear a mask if I'm walking outside? Right. Like what's what's the logical scientific reason? And people people attack me instead of giving trying to give me a scientific or logical explanation, of which there is none, you know, they'll just attack me. And like you said, people say science denier, you know, as if you're a heretic or a blasphemer, <laughs> anti-vaxxer now, right? If I don't want to take um, a vaccine for something that can't kill me and that I've already had and I'm protected from, people are now calling me an anti-vaxxer. I mean, I've taken plenty of vaccines in the past. I don't know how I suddenly became an anti-vaxxer in 2020. Um, and, and it's really interesting. And even the the sort of tribal identity, I think the mask has a lot of symbolism for yeah. people, right? It's not so much that, okay, I'm wearing this thing to protect myself or other people from a virus, a pathogen, 
but I'm doing it to state a signal and to show my morality and to show I'm on the good side. And when I see someone who's not also wearing it, I may now even feel inclined to accost or attack. I mean, people have been physically attacked for not wearing a mask. And I'm just like, this is really, from a psychological perspective, I'm like, this is very, very fascinating. Yeah. And uh, incidentally, uh, and I hate to say this because I'm speaking about colleagues, uh, it's not as though being educated uh, inoculates you against the idea pathogens that I discussed in the book. As a matter of fact, the ones who spawned all those idea pathogens are the most <laughs> educated. But, yeah. but, and so, for example, uh, when it comes to science denying, so many, many, many people, many of my progressive friends will ape, will state the following the, the left is the party of science, whereas the right, you know, they're, troglodytes who reject <laughs> the existence of the sun, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas I explain to people that is absolutely false. So if I take my own discipline, the the right are more likely to reject evolution. Mm-hmm. The left is more likely to reject evolutionary psychology, mm. right? So the so so for religious reasons, I mean literally religious reasons, some senator from the deep south will say, you know, evolution is a Zionist hoax. There is no such thing as evolution. But with equal alacrity, all of my leftist professors who are not steeped in evolutionary psychology argue that evolutionary psychology is a Nazi hoax. And only Nazi bigots would believe in evolved sex differences between between men and women. And so there is no monopoly on rejecting science. The only thing that happens is that the left and the right reject different scientific facts as a function of which scientific fact clashes with their own pet ideologies. Mm -hmm. The right guy might be Christianity. The left guy might be some uh, quasi-secular religion, but they are both behaving in in perfectly anti-scientific ways. Uh, And just to add a bit more to that. So uh, when, when not to, not to re-mention Trump and so on, but it's really relevant to our conversation. Yeah, it's fine, it's fine. One of the things that I I, mean, I noticed, the world noticed, is uh, the unbelievable hysteria that was associated with Trump, right? And I, I talk about this in the parasitic mind, right? Yeah. And I call this collective Munchausen and so on, right? Well, I could take people, and you could probably think who I'm talking about, uh, who've made their careers on being super reflective thinkers, intellectual thinkers, people who meditate, right? And if you look at the hysteria that they engaged in, it would be impossible for me to determine that they were not someone who escaped from a psychiatric institution, right? So Trump is going to end democracy. Mm -hmm. Trump Trump is going to completely crash uh, the economy. I mean, we're going to be bartering with you know with the with the cups because there's no longer going to be currency he's going to destroy he's going to usher a nuclear holocaust now imagine if i were to get up and say on on, on in my public platform there is no such thing as the earth being round the earth is flat there is no proof that sperm is the mechanism by which you fertilize an egg that's not true that's a zionist hoax mm-hmm. i would be laughed out of the public sphere very quickly yeah. but how could you get away as a progressive with equivalent departures from reality. Now, mm-hmm. again, you could hate Trump, but 
to argue that he was going to usher a nuclear holocaust or that he was going to end the economic systems as we knew it is a form of it's a form of reality denial the mm-hmm. denialism right and so that's why by the way i get very uh, spicy at times on social media because in a sense it's my only pressure valve release right <laughs> because I look at the world and I see these people that historically I had respect for them mm-hmm. and I see them to be the exact same buffoons as other folks that we otherwise typically look down on as those little great unwashed rubes. But yeah. you're the same moron as them. Yeah, no no one is immune to... I, some people are more immune to it than others, but as you've said, I mean, rational thinking and logical thinking are very much the exception more than the rule and you you can have and what's really interesting as well though is i think people people are kind of siloed right so you can have someone who in this area and that area they're very logical and rational and then when it comes to this one all of that it, it totally it totally goes out the window and i think it's interesting you mentioned trump because People joke about the whole Trump derangement syndrome, TDS thing, but it's very, very real. Like Donald Trump, I don't know exactly what it is, but he broke a lot of people. He really broke millions of people who, I I mean, there are certain people I know where you can talk about almost any issue and you can have like a fair, reasonable, balanced, open conversation. When you mention the T word, the emotions just, emotions just override everything everything and people don't want to hear the other side they want to demonize they want to believe things that are not true they want to put words in his mouth that he never said etc and i just find that whole thing really really fascinating i don't know if it was the power of the media that just framed him and 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 brainwashed millions of people essentially to believe that he genuinely was a potential hitlerian type figure or something like that but the the things people say about that man in particular, I, I'm I, I'm true. I was truly fascinated by it. You know, I think um, the one benefit of Joe Biden winning, I think, is that the temperature can kind of right. <laughs> ca- calm down a little. Because I, I was getting just like, geez, people are. I, I know people like to say that. Oh wow, it's it's the yeah sure Trump does have some very gung ho supporters, but the stuff I was seeing that was really disturbing wasn't coming primarily from his supporters, but the detractors who just made out in their brain that this isn't just someone who they think is a bit offensive or a bit of a buffoon or they don't like his policies or they think he's brash or, you know, he's a bit of an a-hole, whatever, you know, okay, I can, I can get all that. But when people get into the, he's running concentration camps on the border, he's, he's literally murdering, murdering black and brown people. He's, he's a white supremacist. He's this, he's that. I'm just like, hang on a minute. Like, Right. What are you what are you talking about? Like, what do you mean he's a white supremacist and he's running concentration camps on the border and he's taking away he's murdering black? Which black people is he is he murdering? Like, I don't know. It's uh... Uh, so there's a lot of stuff to unpack there. Yeah. Uh, in chapter two of the parasitic mind, uh, the chapter looks at uh, the tension between thinking versus feeling. OK, mm. and I argue in that chapter that. It is a incorrect and, and moot dichotomy because we're not thinking animals or feeling animals. We are both. Mm-hmm. The challenge is to know when to activate which system. 
When should I activate my cognitive system? And when should I activate my affective system? When I'm going down a dark alley and I see four young men loitering around, and yes, young men are more dangerous than elderly women, and that's not ageism or sexism. So when I see four young men loitering in, a, in, a, in an alley, and I'm about to take that shortcut to get home more quickly, and then my heart starts racing, my blood pressure goes up, I start getting a fear response, so my emotional system has kicked in. That's evolutionarily perfectly expected. I've evolved to have that affective response. If I'm trying to solve a calculus problem on an exam, all of the affective triggering in the world is not going to help me solve that triple integral. So mm -hmm. which system I activate is the whole enchilada, right? So when it comes to Trump, what happened, I mean, there are many reasons why people hate them, but if I'm going to come up with an overriding uh meta framework, as I like to do when I explain these complex phenomena, I'm going to use here a prop. I want you to imagine that this is this memory stick is a uh, cork of a wine bottle, okay? okay? So being a, my mother tongue is Arabic, so there's an expression in Arabic that says, getting drunk by smelling the cork of the wine bottle, right? Mm -hmm. And since Greg Gutfeld of Fox now uses that framework in everything, he explains the whole world according to to my, my thing, right? but let me explain what it is. So look, I'm going to now, so here, here's a glass of wine, okay, which I have to drink to get drunk, or I could just smell the cork. Oh my God, I'm already drunk. Now, I don't know if you understand where I'm going with this. So Obama, Obama, I'm going to smell now the cork of Obama. Oh my God, he's lanky. He has a mellifluous voice. He speaks like a Southern Baptist minister. God damn, I'm getting drunk. You see how I'm getting drunk? Mm -hmm. He is so mellifluous. He is so sexy and noble. Every single syllable that he utters is pure platitudinal that has zero meaning, but I'm drunk. Now, let me get drunk by Trump. Trump might say things that I'm perfectly in agreement with when it comes to critical race theory, when it comes to rejection of open borders, when it comes to fiscal policy, foreign policy, not get into, there might be literally 25 top key policy positions that I agree with, but he's disgusts me. He's vile. He's brash. He's bombastic. He's crude, right? He's mm -hmm. gauche, but I am a Malibu champagne elitist. So he is an aesthetic injury to me. He disgusts me. So what have I done? I got drunk by the cork for Obama because he is so mellifluous in his oratory skills. I was disgusted and repulsed by Trump because he's a disgusting ogre. Mm -hmm. But in neither cases was I able to offer one valid substantive justification for why Obama is a noble prophet and Trump is indistinguishable from Hitler. Mm -hmm. That's the problem with people is that they are incapable of this distinguishing the fast and frugal deployment of their emotions versus actually engaging in cognitive thoughts. Like, so how could it be, for example, that the same person, a public intellectual, can say, I agree, critical race theory is dreadfully a bad idea. Yeah. It is suicidally bad. Trump bans critical race theory in the in the federal you know for federal employees mm -hmm. but yet you're unable to give him credit for that because bruh he is going to usher nuclear holocaust 
that's intellectual dishonesty. Yeah. It comes from from getting drunk by the cork of the wine bottle. I, I get that. I, I like that phrase. There's one more thing I wanted to um, sure. wanted to talk to you about uh, before we wrap up, and and this is something that um, I think we we both experience a lot, and I think we both actually talk about quite a bit. And this is this is the pandemic of cowardice, right? People just. So there are people like us who have large followings, you know, hundreds of thousands to millions of people, and we use our voice, we use our platforms. I'm a rapper, right? I'm a, I'm a musician. I'm not someone who set out to go get involved in politics and the culture war and all that. You're an academic. You're a writer. You're not someone who I think in a, in a sane and normal world would really want to be taking up this mantle and be arguing with people on Twitter and exposing bad ideas and even writing a whole book called the parasitic mind. But I think that millions and millions of people are outsourcing to 0.1% of people expecting them, expecting us to do all of the, all of the combat. Right. And I think that because when it comes to lots of these ideas, the truth is they're not actually very popular, right? Identity politics is not popular. The notion that you should judge people based on their race that you should, uh, you know, demonize men or demonize women or vilify this person or that. Like people, those are not popular ideas. The notion that a man can actually literally biologically be a woman or vice versa is not a popular idea. The notion that I should be able to identify as a woman and partake in female sports is not a popular idea. The vast majority of people know that these things are silly, if not destructive and dangerous. But these ideas keep going because people do not push back against them. At best, they'll quietly dissent, but there's just an absence of testicular fortitude, right? Yeah, there's there's, yeah. An, there's an absence. And, and I often say that cancel culture only works. There's a lot of talk now about cancel culture. And cancel culture, to me, only works because of cowardice. Not always, not necessarily on the part of just an individual, but on the part of companies, on the part of institutions, on the part of people's colleagues, right? So um, just a couple weeks ago, uh, Gina Carano yeah. got fired, a Hollywood actress from The Mandalorian. Uh, she follows me. So, you know, we we chatted a little bit. I got messages from other people in Hollywood. I'm not going to put anybody on blast who who told me, oh, what happened to her is really bad, but I can't say anything because I don't want to lose my job or because um, I haven't made enough money yet or I don't want I want to retire or whatever. And this happens in everything. I get musician. I'm sure you're this. You'll be the same, right? I get for me, especially it's because I'm in the entertainment world. I get countless musicians or people in tech or actors or people in creative industries um, who are like, man, there are even some who don't follow me on social media because um, I had someone tell me they don't follow me on Twitter because they're worried their colleagues will call them racist. I'm right. 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 So you, so you don't follow. <laughs> so wait, you white guy don't follow a black guy on Twitter because your white colleagues will call you racist for fall. I'm, on one hand, I'm kind of, you know, when people say, oh, you're so brave, you're so courageous, I love what you're doing. On one hand, I'm like, thank you. But on another, it annoys me because I'm yeah. like, yo, why are, you, why are you putting this all on me? This isn't even my job. I'm not paid for this. I'm just trying to stop society from sliding into this abyss as best as I can. And yeah. I know you're doing the same there. So what do you think, I, uh, number one, why do you think people are being so cowardly? 
And perhaps number two, what do you think can be done to just make people a bit more courageous? Not in yeah. a huge sense, just just a little, you know? So you remember how earlier you said, well, why is it that now all of these idea pathogens are pro proliferating the way they are? And I mm -hmm. said, well, it's a tipping point, right? It's a confluence of things has to ha have to happen in tandem for us to see the metastatic spread the way that it's spreading. Well, your 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 this your last question speaks to a similar confluence, right? There is cowardice, there is lack of self confidence in your beliefs, there is the subcontracting of your voice to the few courageous folks. This, by the way, in, in economics is called the tragedy of the commons, right? There's a, mm -hmm. there's a, there's a scientific term for it. Let me maybe explain it very quickly. So sure. the tragedy of commons basically are, is, is the following. Let's suppose you have 10 farmers that are using their livestock to graze a particular communal patch of land. But the land really needs to recover at this point. So all 10 farmers get together and say, hey, let's do a gentleman's uh, pact uh, uh, that no one for the next year is going to use this land to graze their livestock. Deal, shake on it. All 10 agree to it. But then each one thinks, you know, if I violated and I will, you know, let my livestock graze on that land, uh, that's the best scenario because the land can still recover. It's only me doing it. And hopefully the other nine people are honorable but of course, the tragedy of the commons is all 10 think like that, and yeah. then we're screwed. So how do I apply this to this context? Everybody says, you know what? Let someone else, the other honorable guy, lend their voice. I have to protect my job. I have to worry about my daughter's dress for her, 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 her uh, high school graduation. I, I, I. Mm -hmm. And so because of this confluence of factors, cowardice, lack of confidence in your principles, subcontracting your voice, all of these mechanisms, by the way, I explain in the last chapter of the parasitic mind where I'm talking about a call to action. Yeah. And so therefore, what's the call to action? Activate your inner honey badger. What does that mean? Honey badger is the most ferocious of animals that you could think of, size of a small dog, and yet it could withstand an attack of six adult lions. How does it mm -hmm. do that? It is extraordinarily fierce and ferocious. The lions look at it and say, this guy is insane. I can go elsewhere for a meal. I'm not going <laughs> to mess with this guy. Well, be the honey badger when it comes to defending your positions. Now, I people who know me actually know I'm, you know, very sweet, very fun, loving. But sometimes we say, oh, sometimes on Twitter, you know, you you come across as very spicy and punchy. Well, because there, I'm. It's a it's a different side of me that I'm activating, right? I have to sometimes gad smack you because you're being insane, right? So it's not as though, I mean. The fact that I can tuck my children to bed and sing them a lullaby doesn't mean that if you attack me in an alley, I'm not going to fight you if you want to mug me, right? Yeah. It doesn't make me that I'm violent. It means that situationally, I behave differently. Mm -hmm. So activate your inner honey badger. If you believe in certain first principles that you can articulate, that you could defend, never back down. Now, the subcontracting of your voice. Zuby has a bigger platform than the average guy. I get that. But you don't have to have a big platform to affect change. Yeah. If you are a student in a classroom and your uh, professor says, well, you know, a nine-inch penis is just another form of vagina. <laughs> uh, excuse me, professor. Can I challenge that? Okay. Yeah. So in other words, I could affect change even within the very small restrained reality of the, the sphere of influence 
in my daily life. Mm-hmm. Maybe my Facebook friend might say something and I say, hey, John, let's go for a beer and let's discuss this. So in other words, you, you don't need to be a fancy professor or a rapper or Joe Rogan to be able to affect change. You could yeah. teach your children how to, be, but just be engaged. You know, I, I've, I've always done this with my children. It's going to sound as though I'm being kumbaya, but I really truly do that. When I go to a beach, I walk around, maybe because I'm anal and a perfectionist, and I start looking around the beach to clean dirt, like clean okay. uh, litter, right? Because then I feel really good. I feel like I just picked up 25 concrete pieces of litter, which had I not done that, the beach would have been worse off by, right? So mm-hmm. just think in small steps, get engaged. Don't subcontract your voice to Zuby. Don't be a coward. By the yeah. way, and so to speak about the point, uh, of you know, but I might lose my job. I always tell people, look, I, I understand that there are real consequences, and yes. I'm not asking you to be a reckless martyr. Sure. But the people who landed on nine, uh, not nine eleven, on in the Normandy beaches mm-hmm. were not guaranteed safe passage. Most of them knew that they were going to be mowed down by German machine guns like little mosquitoes, and yet they they still signed up so that Zuby and I could have a free conversation today. So. In a war, whether it be a physical war or an ideological war, you can't be guaranteed safe passage. I used to have, I developed, I'm the most mellow, cool, fun guy. I started developing anxiety, I mean, literal anxiety, Mm -hmm. because of the number of death threats I was receiving. I used to have to go to campus and be uh, accompanied by security. Mm -hmm. My university went with me down to the Montreal police to file a report containing all of the death threats. So for people who think, Oh yeah, but professor, you're protected by tenure. Yeah. People, people, people always think that their situation is special and that yours is special. That's what I always get. I always get, Oh, but Zuby, like you're in such and such position. And it's like, well, you know, no, I mean, there are people with I don't know if people think I have like hundreds of millions of pounds and that, you know, I'm just so comfortable. It's like, no, especially when I started to speak out, like I wasn't in this position. Jordan Peterson was Jordan Peterson put his job at risk. He has a family. He has a job. Having a family and a job is not special. Most people have families and jobs. Right. So I, I understand and can empathize with those concerns. But yeah, I think people always think their situation is special and that you're in this magical position where you can't be canceled and nothing can affect you yeah. and nothing can affect. And, and it's like, no, that's just not, that's just not true. And I also, when people, especially when people bring up their children, the one I, what, the way I always respond to it is I think, okay, well, what kind of world do you want your children to inherit? Exactly. Right. So I don't have children yet, but I know that when I do, like if we let all this stuff just go unchecked, then it's very possible that the the world for my future children will will be worse right they'll they'll have less rights and less freedoms more people will be murdering the truth they may actually in fact end up being judged based on their skin color and based on their gender etc after we've sort of already won those battles and so i say okay well if you don't do anything you're the one who's complaining to me about the situation in your workplace or the situation in your university etc it's like okay well if you don't do anything do you think it's going to get better or is it going to get worse exactly right? and i, I, I would Sorry to interrupt you. Did you go ahead. You no, go uh, ahead. Go ahead. I, so I would, what I would tell people, uh, it sounds very broad and you know somewhat esoteric, but it really isn't. Uh, I have a very exacting code of personal conduct, so that mm-hmm. you know I am my worst critic. I set the bar infinitely higher than I need to set it, so that that way I know that I'm going to reach hopefully exemplary standards. So 
as relating to what we're talking about. When I go to bed at night and I put my head on the pillow to sleep, the way that I avoid insomnia is to know that I have done all that I can, however big or however small, to not walk away from an opportunity to, so to speak, clean the beach, to lend my voice to the battle. If I feel, which luckily I don't feel, but if I felt as though I wasn't doing all that I could, then being the worst critic of myself, Mm -hmm. I would feel as though I'm a fraud. Therefore, that exacting standard allows me to never walk away, right? Mm -hmm. So in other words, if you're a fireman or a firewoman and you hear the pleas of crying and then you walk away from that, you're not a very good heroic firefighter. Yeah, yeah. It's your job to jump in and 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 help this person. Mm-hmm. Well, you should be walking around making sure that as the truth is being accosted and raped in every alley called universities, you should be standing up and trying to save the truth from the constant rape in whatever small or big way you can. And as mm-hmm. long as you make that commitment, then you could go to sleep at night with a clear conscience. If not, you're a cowardly fraud. Yeah, and pe- people really don't like. Uh, people always get triggered when I use the word coward because that's <laughs> I, even if I'm not talking to them individually, but that's people. That's what the excuses come out. You know, I, I think I think we're very similar in that regard. Maybe it's just a personality type where we have that thing where I, I can't look at myself in the mirror and right. So I, I'm in the world of music. Right, it would be very easy for me to jump on the bandwagon of a lot of this woke n- nonsense and BLM and whatever you know. Pride Month, whatever is trendy in a given year, in a given month, and just virtue signal all day, uh, put a mask on in my profile photo, scream at people for going outside. Like It would be very easy for me to do this. And as you know, a lot of entertainers take this very easy route. But with me, I'm like, I, I can't do that. I've never done it. I've never been able to. I can't do it because I'm just like, I would not be able to sleep, like you said. I wouldn't be able to sleep. I wouldn't be able to look at myself in the mirror and be like, I'd just be like, you are a fraud, Zuby. Like, you're you're, you're and, saying things you don't even believe in, you know? And even even if I was, so someone might say, but you know what? I don't have much of a conscience, so I don't care. <laughs> your, your position, Professor Saad, doesn't move me. Well, yeah. okay, let me give you a more extrinsic one. If you want to have the historical accolades that you think you're deserving of, the world is shaped by people who have our personhood, not the cowardly herd mentality, folks, right? Whether it be Charles Darwin, or I could list you, or be Christopher Hitchens, every single person that you could name as someone that you admire and that you'd want to sit down for to dinner with and that you'd like your children to emulate is probably going to share one thing in common, which is they are not fence sitters. They are people who said, no, 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 I don't sit on the fence. This is the right way. This is the wrong way. I don't care. As Martin Luther said, to use a religious thing, here, not Martin Luther King, Martin Luther, right? He said, here I stand, right? So stand, right? The world history rewards those who stand for their beliefs. So never mind your conscience. If you want to be someone who is remembered as having done something of value, you have to take risks. One of the first things you learn in your MBA program when you're studying finance is greater risk, greater rewards. So you could either be a cowardly fence sitter who goes along with the woke stuff, or you could stand out and and do your Zuby routine. Probably, (laughs) and and I say Zuby just because it's you speaking. I don't want to speak of myself, right? You're probably 
you correct me if I'm wrong, but probably more people know you today because of your public engagement than maybe do because of your rap. And maybe your rap will become more known because of your anti-woke stuff. So there are extrinsic rewards that come with speaking for the truth and defending the truth. Mm -hmm. So stop being a coward and stand up for the truth. Amen. And there's there's a lot of hunger for it as well. So many people, there are so many people who feel like their voices are silenced. So if you're someone who's inclined that way, then, you know, now is, now is the time. And also one thing people also do, I think this is my last point on this, is that people, people vastly over egg the risks, Yeah. right? People really overdo the risk, right? People are, oh, well, I can't share my opinion because I'll lose my job. I'm like, where, where are you working that sharing just a basic opinion is going to get you fired? Firstly, you should probably leave if it's that, if it's that deep, but it's like, yeah, I know there are rare and occasional stories where someone gets fired or dismissed for something that's genuinely silly. But in most cases, it's like the world is not so far gone that simply by telling someone who you voted for or expressing the idea that, you know, maybe being racist against white people's not a good thing or that maybe, you know, mass men aren't just inherently toxic rapists you know (laughs) just fairly basic things i don't think you're not firstly twitter mobs aren't that bad we both faced many of them you'll get a bunch of random avatars you know i don't i barely check my notifications i don't see them anyway but it's like that's not that bad and with the job thing it's like you're not gonna end up destitute and your children starving on the street because you shared a basic opinion you know maybe if your opinions are like really dreadful then then okay yeah maybe don't go putting that on twitter right stay quiet but most people are pretty reasonable we're just talking about people with very basic like slightly conservative slightly liberal slightly whatever centrist views right um so it's not as scary it's not actually as scary as people think indeed you're exactly right yeah get out there fight for truth amen and uh Dr. Sad, where can people find you online? Where's the best place? So uh, you, you can follow me at Gad, G-A-D-S-A-A-D. Uh, I also have a YouTube channel called The Sad Truth, S-A-A-D Truth. Uh, I also recently started uh, you know, migrating all my YouTube stuff on a podcast, The Sad Truth with Dr. Sad. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a public Facebook page, so I'm easy to find. But awesome. all I can do is please don't subcontract your voice. Fight for truth. I love that. Dr. Saad, thank you so much for coming on the show for the second time. Um, It won't be the last time. And uh, if you haven't yet read his book, The Parasitic Mind, um, it's a fantastic book. One of the best books I've read in the recent years. So go check that out. Thank you, sir. Cheers. Take care. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done.